keep that bulletin insert handy because on the back side is Isaiah 59, halfway through verse 15 from a different version, which we'll listen to in just a few moments. Isaiah chapter 59 is very much a continuation of Isaiah chapter 58. The chapter divisions are simply a convenience factor given to us uh, so that we can find our place around. There were no chapter divisions when Isaiah wrote it. Isaiah chapter 58 contrasted false worship with true worship. Uh, It's often termed hypocritical worship, but it really wasn't so much hypocritical worship in chapter 58. It was false. They thought they were doing a pretty good thing. They thought their worship of God was pretty noble. It was pretty committed. It was pretty legitimate. But God called it out as it's not just hypocritical, it's false. And God had no interest in that kind of worship. And that worship didn't produce any good result. God said, I'm not listening, I'm not seeing, and I'm not responding with any of my covenant blessing to you people based upon the way that you are approaching me. But all hope wasn't lost because God laid out a plan for exactly how everything could change. And that plan, if I were, I'm going to pick out some verses, but look back in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 6, where the Lord explicitly tells Israel what he expects of them. Isaiah 58 verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he, the Lord, will say, here I am. Then in verse 11, it talks about the Lord guiding them, satisfying their desire. talks about their ancient ruins being rebuilt, raising up the foundations. They'll be called repairer and restorer. Verse 13, if you turn your foot from the Sabbath, turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you right on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Israel is abiding under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And, and the greatest sign or the most significant sign of that Mosaic Covenant is their observance or God making known to his people the Sabbath. And so their, how they approach the Sabbath day is a demonstration of their love for God who has entered into this covenant with him, with them by his grace. And their interest in the Sabbath has been very false, half-hearted. And the Lord calls them out. But he offers all these promises all these blessings, and it almost seems too good to be true. And, and Israel, at this point, is kind of faced with the decision. God's made all these wonderful promises about 
Light breaking forth, healing springing up, righteousness going before you, the glory of the Lord being your rear guard. I'm going to be your delight. All these wonderful promises. And I don't know exactly how Israel responded to this because the news is so good. It's so over the top that it seems like they're somewhat skeptical. They find it hard to believe that the Lord can promise all this stuff. Like the Lord talks a good talk. But when push comes to shove, it is so not their experience. And so they're struggling with God makes wonderful promises, but life now is hard. If you put it in church context, God has made wonderful promises to his church. But you know, life may be hard right now. And so what do you do when you've got wonderful promises, but life being difficult and hard now? Tears being shed now. Difficulty uh, being at your back door now. Well, it would seem from the way chapter 59 starts off, it seems like Israel's misgivings come along two lines. They're like, we appreciate the sentiment, Lord. I mean, what you're promising sounds so good, we're just not sure you can deliver. Or we're not really sure that you care that much. So chapter 59 and verse 1, it starts off this way. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. It's kind of intimating the two objections to these wonderful promises is that Israel believes the Lord can't really do this. If he's, he's promised more than he can deliver, or that he's really not listening. He really doesn't know what our problem is. Sometimes... Uh, being in a good relationship, when somebody shares their problems, it's good to be a good listener before you start dispensing your wisdom. Sometimes, you've probably all had the experience where you've tried to, in fact, this I, I hate to make this a gender thing, but it seems like guys oftentimes are very quick to dispense their wisdom or their solution to the problem, when very often... Uh, what the wife wants is listening and understanding. You don't, I'm not sure you understand the problem. Why don't you just listen for a while before you tell me what the problem is? If you've never seen, it's not about the nail, right? <laughs> is that what Darwin's thinking? It's a, a minute video, which is really fun to watch. It's not about the nail. But at any rate, so, so this seems to be the issue and And the answer to, is the Lord's arm shortened and does he care? The answer in verse 1 is, it starts with the word behold. Don't miss it. Don't misunderstand. Behold, the Lord's arm is not shortened. This is not a problem of the Lord lacking ability. This is not a problem of the Lord not understanding or listening to what the problem is. Behold, that's not the case. The problem, in fact, turns out to be with Israel. It turns out to be with Israel. Now, I'm going to have you listen to uh, David Suchet reading the passage in just a moment. But before I do that, let me set it up this way. Going all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis we find that the likes of us, people, we, we have this wonderful tendency and reliance to blame other people for our problems. Uh, we may blame God. We may blame other people. We may blame society. We may bl- blame uh, 
whatever structure is in place, whatever the way we were taught in school, we we don't lack such people or or structures to blame for our problems. It started in Genesis. Uh, Adam blamed God for creating Eve in the first place. He didn't ask for her. God just gave it, gave her to him. And so you gave her to me, and she's the one that gave me the apple, or not the apple, the fruit. We don't know what it was, the fruit, and I did eat. And then Eve essentially blames the serpent. We're just masters at blaming people for our problems. Everybody does it. I've done it. You do it. Some people live their entire lives doing it in in worse ways where they cripple and handicap themselves. I've been in any number of uh, situations. There Sometimes it's sort of a counseling situation. And I'm trying to convince people to stop blaming everybody else for their circumstances. Just stop it. You will, you will always be the victim. You will never improve the situation. You will never go a better direction so long as you're blaming what other people say and do and how they you need to stop that. Well, on, on one level, that's terrible advice if you're dealing with eternal truths in God because you can't change your situation. I can't change my eternal destiny. I can't just think well enough about myself to get myself into the kingdom of heaven, to give myself peace with God, to give myself the forgiveness of sins. In temporal life, Life amongst ourselves, you've got to take ownership for your life and the decisions and the direction you're going. But before God, you've got to surrender. You've got to recognize this is a problem bigger than what you could possibly solve. And you've got to cry out to God for his grace and for his mercy. So what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you listen to, we're going to do the second half of Isaiah chapter 59 next week. And I think it's going to, I mean, I haven't put it together yet, but I know what I have in mind, how I want it to work. I hope it's going to be a really, um, a little bit different and kind of a unique way to be able to do the second half of Isaiah chapter 59. We're going to listen to the first half, I call it half, uh, just because of the way the chapter is divided up. We're going to listen through the first half of verse 15, and I'm going to open, after, I, after we listen to this, I'm going to have you answer the question... What is the desired outcome or the goal? We've got a problem. And what is the, what is the end game? What is the goal? What is the objective? Where does Israel want to be? And there's two words. If you get one of those two words, you really are a first... I mean, that's the, that's the best way. There's a couple other words you could pick out, and they're good words, and I'm not going to dispute it. But especially there's two words, and partly they're repeated, so that maybe will help, as to what is the goal. We've got a problem. Where do we want to be? What do we want to see happen? Uh, What do we want to experience? What do we want to know? So listen, follow along on your bulletin insert, Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 15a. Isaiah chapter 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, 
your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offences are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. I realize, because I really don't spend a lot of time in the NIV, which is what we just heard, I mostly am in my English Standard Version, I realize the word even jumps out more in what you just heard. So what's the goal? What's the objective? We're going to talk about the problem, but what's the, what's the goal? What's the objective? What's the end game? What do they want? Justice. They want justice. They want justice. Justice is a very interesting word in the Old Testament. It, it means more than a fair society in the Old Testament. The word justice has to do with the rule of God making things right. Justice in the Old Testament is the rule of God that Israel is to personify God's justice, the rule of God that makes things right. But Israel was not a just society. Israel was given to injustice. They were given to oppressing the weak, oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the widows. The justice of God isn't just this legal standard. In fact, I could read to you a lot about the word justice, which if I had my video projector, I'd probably show some select excerpts up on the screen. This is from the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. So it's probably two pages if I print the whole thing out. A two-page definition of the word justice in the Old Testament. But let me read a couple excerpts. 
according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, the, the meaning of justice is further complicated by the fact that although the ancients knew full well what law was, they did not think of themselves as ruled by laws, but rather by men. So in other words, in the Old Testament, when they talked about justice, they weren't merely thinking about laws, about what was written. They identified justice more with a person who administered what was right. It had more to do with a person, impersonal objective code written on tablets of stone. So justice has more to do with a person than just uh, than, than a code. goes on to say, um, hence, the following analysis of use of this basic word for the exercise of justice appears. It means to act as a ruler. By way of eminence, justice means to decide cases of controversy rightly. It's about people living justly. We're deciding rightly what God would have us to do. God is the ultimate administrator of justice. God doesn't follow the rules better than anybody else. God is the rule. That's the difference. God is the rule. What he does is right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He is just. So we have a sense of justice because God is just. He is right. The church is to reflect God's justice. His rightness in how we order our lives. His, uh, uh, his rightness in what ought to be our priorities, what ought to be our goals and objectives. The church collectively should reflect the justice, the rightness of God. Individually, I should reflect the rightness of God. So there's no justice. Justice is the goal, and there is no justice. Other words that were used that you could pick out would be righteousness, Uh, The word salvation was used a couple times. But in verse 9, we see that justice is far away. Their hope is not realized in verse 11. In verse 14, justice is turned back and far away. Uh, In in other uh, places in Isaiah, the word would be peace. Peace for the wicked. Why is there no peace? We look on the earth, look in society, look in our culture. There's no peace. There's no right of God prevailing upon the hearts of people. Why is it there? What is the problem? Well, the problem in verse 1 is it's not that the Lord's hand is shortened. It's not that God has ceased being right. It's not that God has ceased ruling. It's not that God is still not Lord of heaven's armies, Lord of hosts. Why is Israel finding justice so elusive? And the answer is with them. In verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands. It's not the Lord's hand is shortened. Verse 3, your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. The problem is with you. It's not with the Lord. If we don't have peace, if we don't have the the rightness of God prevailing upon the hearts of men, it's not God's problem. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. 
It's Israel's fault. The original context is, is the Lord with his people, Israel. It's your fault. It's your sin. It's your iniquity. It's your... And then he names all these different parts, your, your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue. It's you that have made a separation. The word separation, the very first time it's used in the Bible is in Genesis. It's in the very second verse, fourth verse of the Bible. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God is light and men now in this passage in 58 are stumbling in darkness. Even at noonday, they're stumbling in darkness. There's a separation that's taken place. And the Lord's telling his people, it's a separation you created by your sin, by your iniquity, by the, the way that you pursue these evil intents and idolatries. It's you that have caused the separation, not the Lord. Not the Lord. It's also a word, the word separation in the Old Testament is kind of an important word. The very first high priest under Mosaic law was Moses' older brother Aaron. He's the first high priest. And Aaron is told in Leviticus, The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations." You are to separate between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The very first high priest of Israel is to separate what is clean and unclean. What is, what is set apart to the Lord and what is common. That's what the high priest's job was. All of Israel was to do this as well. They even had clean foods and unclean foods. They were to make a separation. It's the same word. You've got to distinguish. You've got to live differently. But what, I, what Israel finds out, according to Isaiah, is if they're taking seriously that they are to separate the clean from the unclean, they're the unclean. They're the ones that are separate. They're the ones that can't stand before this God. He's holy. They're not. The separation is on them. It's not on the Lord, according to to what Isaiah says. In verse 4, he refers to empty pleas. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. That word empty is in the second verse of Genesis. The earth was without form. The old King James says the earth is empty. It was empty. There was nothing there. No substance No organization, no value. It was empty. And the Lord charges his people through the prophet Isaiah, or please, the way that you're crying out to me, it's empty. It's devoid of any value, of any worth. There's no sincerity. There's no repentant heart. There's no seeking after the Lord in truth and righteousness. You don't want the Lord's justice. You don't want the Lord's rightness. You only want the problems removed. Most of the time, or a lot of the time, in situations of counseling, people want the consequences of their sin removed. They don't have any intention of changing their own sinful patterns of behavior. They just want to get rid of the consequences. They don't like what sin produces, but they don't want to address why it's producing that, the root of the problem. 
So that's brought up in verse 4. In verses 5 and 6, you've got images of adder's eggs, a snake's eggs, and spider's webs. I think the point there is that all you're producing is destruction and death. The only thing you're producing for all of your worship, for all of your fasting, for all of your singing, all you are producing is destruction and you're producing death. There's a passage in the Gospels, it's Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is calling out the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. And Jesus says this to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The adders and the spider's webs. You can't clothe yourself with a spider web. You're certainly not helping the proselyte. Nobody's drawing near to God in Isaiah's day or in Jesus' day because of the scribes and the Pharisees. Nobody understands the righteous rule of God Almighty because of the scribes and Pharisees. Because of Israel in Isaiah's day. Nobody draws closer to God or understands the rightness of God when the church abandons his word. It just doesn't happen. If the church is merely trumpeting what culture says, nobody understands the rightness of God. Verses 7 and 8 are verses that are quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Now, in light of that description from verses 2 through verse 8, and how it's touched every aspect of who they are, it's kind of an amazing thing that Israel, in verse 1, it's intimated, they're saying, we think the problem is with God. We think God doesn't care when they have to be confronted with that kind of sin, that kind of bent, revealing their rebellion against God. Um, This is what theologians call the total depravity of man. And this is a case where we need gender inclusive because it includes women too. It's the total depravity of humanity. Total depravity does not mean that people are as bad as they could be. You could always be worse. You could always, do, you could always do more evil. You could commit more sins, more acts of rebellion against God than what you do. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity, according to theology, means it has affected every area of your being. It affects your thoughts. It affects your will. It affects your desires. It affects everything you are. You are totally affected by your sin. This is what you came to church for today, to find out how bad you are. But it's only in understanding your depravity that you will understand the gospel in the second half of Isaiah 59, which is next week. Read ahead. Don't wait for next week. If you feel overwhelmed by, I didn't come to church to feel that bad, you really did. You really do need to know that. Because it's only in your desperation that you will appreciate what God did in his son. 
So long as you think it's a partnership between you and God, and between the two of you, everything's going to be okay, you will be lost in your sin. So Isaiah makes it explicitly clear, we are totally depraved. Not surprisingly, Charles Spurgeon preaches a message from Isaiah chapter 58. I'm going to give you an excerpt. It goes like this. Charles Spurgeon said, he's my favorite Baptist, You thought that God's hand was shortened, that it could not save. But it is your hand that is shortened. For you have not laid hold of Christ. You have not taken your sins to him to be put away. You said that God's ear was dull. Nay, nay, nay. It is your ear that is dull. You have not heard what God the Lord has been saying to you. You have not been obedient to the heavenly message. All the mischief lies with yourself, not with God. And at the last, if you are not saved, the blame will not rest upon the Savior, but upon yourself. This is the doctrine we preach. If a man is saved, all the honor is to be given to Christ. But if a man is lost, all the blame is to be laid upon himself. You will find all true theology summed up in these two short sentences. Salvation is all the grace of God. Damnation is all the will of man. Then I've got another quote I'll read you, a passage from James Montgomery Boyce. He passed away in 2000. He passed away much too early so far as people are concerned. He uh, passed away of cancer. He was pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, Marvelous individual, marvelous speaker. The Whites, you've heard him too, like at least on audio. I mean, he was terrific speaker. He had this deep, gravelly voice and just a brilliant theologian, wonderful to listen to. But in his commentary on uh, John's Gospel, which is a, I think it comes in three volumes. I've got a one-volume edition, which is a big, one of my bigger, thick books. Uh, he has an amazing story on, on all the blame lies with us. It's our ear that is dull, not God's ear. It is our unwillingness to to repent and turn to God in humility and crying out for the forgiveness of sins. It's not God is resistant. So he says this, James Montgomery Boyce. Man no longer seeks God. In fact, man runs from God. He does this in religious ways as well as in secular ways. God is good. Man is sinful. If man's intellect were functioning properly, the intellect should tell him that all truth, joy, growth, and happiness is to be found in fellowship with his creator. But when man fell, his mind began to be warped in regard to spiritual things, so that now he thinks happiness is to be found independent of God. Montgomery Boyce says, I know that someone will ask... What do you mean when you say that man runs away from God? I sought God. In fact, I'm still seeking him. I sought God in the Presbyterian church. And when I couldn't find God in the Presbyterian church, I left it and became a Baptist. When I couldn't find God in the Baptist church, I left that church and became a Methodist. Now I'm a Pentecostal. And if I don't find God in the Pentecostal church, I'm going to leave that church and become a Mormon. End quote. Montgomery Boyce responds, You have not been seeking God, you've been running away from Him. When God got close to you in the Presbyterian church and said, My child, this is the truth about your condition and your need for a Savior, you turned from Him saying, 
I don't like that way of talking about religion. I'm going somewhere else. You went to the Baptist church, and when God got close to you in the Baptist church, you became a Methodist. Now you're a Pentecostal. The truth is that you are not seeking God. You're running away from him. That's one of my favorite uh, examples that I've ever read Montgomery Boyce say. I think that's a great illustration of we don't seek God. We run from God. All right, let's keep going. Verse nine, verse 9, there's a turning point in Isaiah chapter 58. It's that word, therefore. And this is a big turning point. This is a big conclusion based upon those first eight verses. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Blindness has completely overtaken Israel because of their sin. Uh, Darkness is an interesting image uh, that he gives there. It's a powerful image because darkness is something that's kind of, uh, it's kind of fun when you have control over it. I mean, generally, teen club or students, they like playing kick the can in the dark. You don't play kick the can in the light. You play games in the dark. And it's fun to play flashlight tag in the dark. But so long as you have control over the dark, it's very manageable. It's very not threatening. It's not that scary. But when you have no control over the dark, when you're in a very dark place and you have no light... That's a, that's a different situation. Isaiah is picturing Israel as in the dark, even if it's midday. Even in the brightest part of the day, you have no idea what the solution is. You have no idea how to remedy this problem. You have no idea the way out of this disaster. That's how dark it is in Isaiah. He talks about bears and doves in verse 11. I... Find the translation of growling like bears very unfortunate because growling is is just not what the word means so far as I can tell. It is generally a word that is translated to make an uproar. So it's not just growling with discontent, it's making an uproar. There's a different, I mean, I I would not be comfortable if a bear growled, but if a bear stands up on his hind legs and roars at me, and then gets down and starts moving, that's, that's uh, a little bit more difficult yet. So this is making an uproar like a bear or moaning like a dove. Here are a group of people that have a problem. And sometimes when you are in great distress and great difficulty, and great, sometimes we rear up and we roar at God. Why this? Why now? Don't you... And we're angry. And that's a real emotion. And it really happens. And if you've lived long enough, you've probably done it. And then there's other times where you're very broken and you're, you moan, God, like, what's the way out of this? What's the solution? What am I not doing right? And the solution is you can't do it. The solution is God has to do it. But you have to realize you can't do it. You have to realize only God can remedy this situation, which he will do. In the second half of verse 59. But first his people have to know how dark it is, how hopeless it is, apart from him fixing it. Then you've got verses 12 and 13, which are a summation of these transgressions. There are transgressions against God. There are transgressions against other people. Verse 13 
The first three are primarily sins against God. He talks about them transgressing, I'm going to say, against God. Denying the Lord. Turning back from following our God. And then regarding other people, speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. You've got two ultimate commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And they don't do either one. They don't love God, and they don't love their neighbor. And they are plunged into a hopeless darkness. And then in verse 4, we'll end this up. Verse 14 says, Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. There are four... Four things that must take place for there to be a productive, blessed society. To live in right relationship with God. To live in the justice, the rightness of God. It requires justice, righteousness, truth, and uprightness. And none of those things exist. God is going to enter a situation in the second half of 59 where there is no justice, righteousness, truth, or uprightness. All of that is absent. It's like creation. There's nothing. God starts with nothing. And from nothing, he creates something of value and order and beauty. But he starts with nothing. We live in such a day that there's very little interest in what is true. There is no pursuit of the truth. By God's grace, may we pursue what God says is true. By God's grace, may we commit ourselves to what he says is right and true, no matter what the culture says, no matter whether it comes with rewards right now, because God says it's true, and that's where my hope lies. He says, not in what culture says. What are your comments and questions? Rick. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. You're in Isaiah, so you don't have to find a new book. Just go back early to... uh, it's a passage you know. Everybody knows this passage. You just know it at Christmas time. Know it in December. You don't know it so much in August. But in in Isaiah chapter nine, and there's there's three or four passages that really bring this out. But this is the first one. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What is the solution to our problem? It's not who's writing the laws in Washington, D.C., It's not who's in the White House in Washington, D.C. What is the solution to our problem? That that individual comes back in power and glory. He is justice. He is right. He is righteousness. And his righteousness will prevail because of who he is. Not because he's following a script or an order. It's in a person. Salvation is in a person. Not just a precept. Good point. Somebody else? Cindy. 
Our job is to, we, the church is uh, the personification or meant to be a taste of the rightness, the justice of God on earth. We are ambassadors of another kingdom. We are to demonstrate the righteousness of Christ when he comes back in power and glory. In very practical ways, it's just what we read last week in chapter 58. It's, it's defending uh, the cause of the oppressed and the poor and those that are overlooked and neglected by society. It includes that. It includes that. It's how do we love our neighbor in light of the way that we worship God. That's James, that's New Testament, that's Old Testament. Both are true. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.